Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> We're doing a survey. Yeah. About heavy metal music. Come on. Hey up, you pop crazy youngsters. And welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that reaches down the back of the settee of old episodes of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, my wingman, the Winco, David Stubbs. How are you, David? How do you do? Not so bad, not so bad. And as always, we have a third opinion. In this episode, it's another former Melody Maker writer, Taylor Parks. All right. So, Taylor, as always, when we have a new guest, we we ask two questions. First one is, when did you start watching Top of the Pops? Uh, it was always there. It was always there. Always. Yeah, it's what, virtually my first memory is the Bohemian Rhapsody video, uh, Chilled to the Marrow by Brian May's looming Isaac Newton face. Um, yeah. When was it not there? Never. Did you watch it with your family? Um, no, I had my own place. No, yeah, of course I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, um, but you know, it was family entertainment, wasn't it? That was the when you watch the old ones. This is what comes across. It's uh, they got one eye on the on the family. Well, both eyes on the family. It's not a, It's not really a rock and roll experience. It's a, It's like a variety show. Uh, but yeah, okay. When did you stop watching Top of the Pops? Probably about the same time as I stopped doing lots of other things. So, David, what's been what's been going on since we last spoke? Ooh, um, you had a book launch, didn't you? I did have a book launch. Yeah, nineteen ninety six and the end of history. Yeah, it's a kind of. I mean, everyone who's doing these kind of books about years at the moment, like John Savage in nineteen sixty six, David Edwards in nineteen seventy one, and so it just looks like I'm kind of like you know I'm third tag along or a bad one bandwagon. But uh, I swear I didn't know they were doing those books when I started doing this, which is a, goes back a long, long way. But I just thought that nineteen ninety six would be a perfect year to kind of home in on, because it was a sort of. It was the apex of something slightly hideous, but in a way, the kind of the end, the impending end of things, the end of the 20th century, just obviously temporarily, but also culturally. Um, the 21st century, you know, as it came, you know, did bring with it things, you know, like the Internet, things like the effective end of both rock and pop music, I think, as, as we knew it. Um, so it just seemed, you know, appropriate 20 years on and all that. Uh, like mm. the book out on the subject. Excellent. Uh, and a book I've read recently, man. Really enjoyed it. Oh, nice one. Cheers. Um, and where can you get hold of it? Um, oh, I think um, um, repeater books of the publisher. Um, there's a place called um, Burley Fisher, who I think who, in London. It's always you know possible to drive people towards independent uh, you know retailers or whatever. Definitely. Um, and then obviously there's Amazon or whatever. Yeah, of course. Right, um, Taylor, um, you were uh, you you got taken for a ride, didn't you? By uh, by a pop personality of the 1980s. Do tell us all about it. Yeah, I was uh, 
uh, driven the length of Southend Pier in a golf cart with the, with the bloke who replaced Jimmy Somerville in Bronski beat. That's um, John John, isn't it? John 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 John. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was quite an experience. Um, and I I uh, hit that perfect beat boy is a surprisingly good record when you hear it now. It really is. Which is probably why he likes to talk about it so much. <laughs> but he's a nice chap. Nice chap. The only thing I've got to, to, to chip in in things I've done recently is that I, I went on a karaoke night with Chris Needham. It's it's terrible to think that too few people just realise just how momentous that is. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I think it was probably the highlight of, of the decade so far for me. I have to ask Al, what, uh, what did you choose on karaoke? Did you do? I've had the time of my life. What? What was... No, well, I, I gave it much serious thought. I mean, the, the, the way it went was uh, <laughs> apparently every week that the karaoke's on, Chris always goes on first and he always does the full version of Master of Puppets. Excellent. Followed up by the Ace of Spades. So he's knocked out two biggins there. I mean, I <laughs> I suggest to him that we do Dead Ringer uh, and, yeah. and I offered to be share to his meatloaf, but he, he wasn't comfortable with it. So um, so I did uh, Since You've Been Gone by Rainbow and then we both did Fight for Your Right to Party. It was, you know, it, it was one of the highlights of my life. I feel like I was there. It was a good mix, you see, because, yeah. you know, like we're like Donnie and Marie, you know, I'm a bit, little bit hip-hop and he's a bit thrash metal. <laughs> and that was the one tune where, that was the one tune where we could just meet on, you know, on, on kind of like the same ground. Mm. So this episode... Ceases going all the way back to February the 9th, 1984. This is deep into Top of the Pops' flags and balloon face, where every episode felt like pop star Hawaiian night at the bowling alley. 1984, <laughs> where were we, chaps? I was, um, I was last year at university, and I was actually putting on um, clubs, um, you know, nightclub club nights and things like that. Um, they were mm. kind of a weird mixture of, like, goth and hip-hop. And uh, nobody came. You know, when I say that, you know, when people say nobody, they mean oh, under a hundred people. I mean, I mean under one person. I mean zero. Nobody came. There was one called Meltdown, and then it was um, what was the other one called? Um, oh, I can't even remember what what it was called. It was Meltdown was the first one it was called. Um, and he used to actually have a meltdown actually um, in utter despair at the absolute emptiness of the dance floor before me. No, I mean you know when I say no one came, I mean literally no one came. Taylor, what were you doing in nineteen eighty four? Um, I was 11 uh, and three quarters. And, I mean, I was doing what everyone was doing when they were 11. Come on, not not let you get away that easily. What were you doing at 11 well, and three quarters? Uh, <laughs> waiting to be 12. <laughs> what music were you into? I genuinely can't remember. Apart from, you know, like the Beatles and stuff, but nobody wants to know about that. I was, uh, I was just about to become uh, a fully-fledged pop kid. But I was just sort of on the verge. It was still I was still watching Top of the Pops uh, as entertainment, like as a sort of David Attenborough thing. You know what I mean? Rather than something that was uh, really about my life. You know, I was still watching it in the way that I watched it as a six-year-old, rather than uh, as a as a chart consumer. I mean, I was I was just about to get ready to fail all my O levels and kind of like still in my sort of mod phase just really hanging it out by this time I was the last mod at school and uh, probably wearing a pair of really battered jam shoes that I had to top up with Tipex 
every few months and uh, just looking like a twat and having no girlfriends. And uh, I remember yeah. saying to an older kid at school, um, "Yeah, I'm a mod," and he started <laughs> laughing uproariously. And he said, "You, you don't, you're eleven. You don't even know what a mod is." And I said, "Yeah, I do." He said, "All right, what is it then?" I said, uh, "A mod is someone who likes fancy clothes." And he was like, oh, no, actually, he said, a mod is someone who likes madness and the jam and has a scooter and, has, and just gave me a laundry list of things that a mod had to do. And I thought, years later, looking back, I was more right than he was. Yeah, um, and, definitely. You were clean living under difficult circumstances, weren't you? Yeah, I, that, that was the point in my life. And he'd just when, seen Quadrophenia too many times. Yeah, I know. This is, I, when I think back, when, at what point in my life, my life was I living the cleanest um, I would say probably probably about February 1984 Excellent, that's convenient isn't it So what was in the news at the time Well, Libya had just released two British hostages but decided to keep four more just to be bastards about it The US are pulling their marines out of the Lebanon uh, because of the bombings and all that kind of stuff TVAM is on the verge of closing down again uh, meanwhile, in the sports world, Robert Maxwell's about to buy Man United. Yeah, what a shame that didn't happen. And the Sarajevo Winter Olympics are in its second day. But the big news on this day, February the 9th, 1984, is Yuri Andropov has snuffed it this very day. Oh, yeah, it was a bleak time. Uh, yeah, they, they were they were dropping like nine pins at the time with the leaders because you had, in short order, you know, you had Brezhnev, then Andropov, then Shinenko, uh, whom we'll probably hear a little bit, uh, and... and um, um, and then, of course, um, what's his name was just around the corner, um, Gorbachev or Gorbs. Um, so, um, yeah, strange, desperate, odd time to uh, be in the uh, you know Soviet Union, I guess. So on Russia, they're getting loads of solemn music right about this time, while we're about to fizz with pop excitement. Our drop-off was at least uh, uh, more prominent than Chernyanko, who lasted about... Uh, about a week and his only thing he ever did was to be in the two tribes video and he didn't even do that he didn't even do that it was it was an actor in a skin do you think anyone showed chinenko the two tribes video <laughs> to kind of like cheer him up <laughs> imagine no honestly if you were in your hospital bed and you were really bad there if someone come up to me and said oh look here's a video of you kicking ronald reagan <laughs> up the arse and grabbing him by the bollocks that'd perk you right up wouldn't it <laughs> on the cover of the NME is the Smiths, unsurprisingly. On the cover of Smashers, on the other hand, is Marilyn, who's with a fan that he met on Jim Will Fix It. With Jimmy Savile as an intermediary as well, yeah. yeah. The yes. story mentions a young lad who's there to ask Jim to fix it for him to meet Rolf Harris. Oh. <laughs> That's it's terrible, just, isn't it? Yeah, it's just like he couldn't go for 10 seconds in the 1980s, could he, without sort of tripping over one or the other of them? Can you imagine his story now? I mean, surely someone's approached him mm. in his local mm. newspaper after, you know, uh, after the uh, after recent events came out. But remember, if the BBC is privatised soon, that would never have happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the number one LP is Touch by the Eurythmics. Over in the USA, the number one hit single is Karma Chameleon by Culture Club, five months after we'd had it and got bored of it. Of course, this is around the time that um, Culture Club are on uh, the A-Team. Do you remember that episode? No. It, yeah. For some reason, they run into the Culture Club and they get on really well. And, and the whole thing ends with Culture Club at a cowboy bar 
doing Karma Chameleon and, you know, everyone's firing the guns in the air and, you know, really enjoying themselves, which was nice. Yeah, even B.A. Barakas had yeah, ne- a smile on his face. Never saw it. I remember yeah, it. It was like, yeah. it, it, there was a trend for this. Like, Phil Collins was on Miami Vice yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It was like British Miami pop stars. Like, you know, yeah. And, he, and, and Phil Collins was the first person I ever heard say wanker on the television as well, mm. on that episode of Miami Vice. I think the Americans didn't know what he was saying. Well, it's like, it's cute, isn't it? It's like in, in Britain, you can say mad. If you have a, like a, a snooty Frenchman on telly, you can say mad. And it's like, everyone yeah. knows what it means, but it's it's not in English, so it's okay. That's all right, yeah. And the other thing about American telly that does my head is that they, they can say piss any time yeah. they like. And crap, crap as well. Piss, crap. Yeah. I think Phil Collins was the first person I said wanker at on television. But, uh, well. Yes. <laughs> And of course, the number one LP in the USA is Thriller, as it would be for most of that year. So what else was on telly this night? Well, ITV's repeating Carry On Laughing, presumably the one with a clip of Sid James with his eyes closed, holding a pair of maras and thinking that Barbara wins his tits, which always confused me because, you know, even then, even at that age, I kind of knew that, that tits shouldn't feel like maras. BBC Two's running the African Queen with Humphrey Bogart. Channel 4 News is on the new channel. Uh, BBC One showing highlights from the first day of the Winter Olympics. So, uh, yeah, not really much competition at the moment. So, shall we get on the magic sofa and go all the way back to 1984, chaps? Let's do it. Yeah, all right. We start with Yellow Pearl by Phil Linnett, which is the current Top of the Pops theme tune. Co-written with Midge Orr when he was a stand-in of Thin Lizzy in 1979, it was on his solo in solo LP in 1980, which also featured Billy Curry of Ultravox and Rusty Egan of Visage. It was remixed for Top of the Pops when it came their theme tune in July of 1981, and it got to number 14 in January of 1982. How do we feel in the canon of Top of the Pops theme oh, tunes? Where does this stand, David? Um, hmm, hmm. About third or fourth, I think. Right. As low as that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but that might not be that might not be their fault. It's, it might just be an association with the times, really. And also, I might I might be discounting still later themes. So yeah, perhaps I might have to upgrade it to second or third, really. You know, I'm a kind of whole lot of love guy, obviously. But uh, uh, and after that, really, it's just sort of desperate, also running, um, and it's all a little bit kind of silvery and desperate. Um, but um, but so yeah, so I might have kind of loaded mm. my sort of you know, disdain for the decline of pop and civilization onto the particular tune, which is not fair. Opening credits are nice, though, aren't they, Taylor? Yeah. This the, what this the coloured uh, coloured singles flying at the camera. It's remarkable. I thought it was TV TV trickery. I saw a thing recently. No, a bloke just painted a load of seven inch singles and just wang them at the camera. Um, <laughs> this is the top of the pops theme tune to me, you see. This yeah. is the one. This is the uh yeah, if I'm humming to myself or strumming the guitar and I need a, a drum fill, that is my default drum fill now. That's right. the one. That's how it, right. goes. it goes deep at an early age. 
the lyrics are a bit mentalist um, about about the Asian sorts and how they're going to take over the world with their technology, whilst using that very same technology to make the record. I mean, we have lyrics such as, it is foolish under the guise of love and liberty that we should capitalise and rob and fell the poor for the socialistic tree. <laughs> Someone's been listening to Rush there, haven't they? Anyway, our hosts for the evening. It's we've entered the era where they uh, where they they double up on the on the hosting duties. And this week we have Gary Davies and Dave Lee Travis uh, in pairs like policemen. Yes, yeah, and a very weird pair in it is too, isn't it? I mean, to my eyes, I mean, um, DLT is about thirty nine, going on fifty seven, and uh, Gary Davies is 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 the youngling. He's he's quite new to it. The whole effect is. It does mm. really smack of uh, bring your child to work day, doesn't it? Well, definitely. I mean, it's this real sense of this hideous continuum that, like, you know, Gary Davis is just the kind of the Travis apprentice, basically, and Travis is looking at <laughs> in 30 years' the time. Travis's apprentice. Yeah, this is it. And in 30 years' time, I, I am the personification of what you will be in a kind of uninterrupted continuum. Yeah, it's, um, it, is, it is grim. I mean, do you think that we're doing this as um, kind of training them up? Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. I hesitate to use the word grooming, but it's um, absolutely it's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, and there's that whole those, those kind of perma crap leather jackets that kind of course oh, yes. throughout sort of pop history never seem to go. We're never in fashion, but never go out of fashion somehow, and uh, that kind of hideous. Well, let's talk about what they're wearing. I mean, DLT looks like he's just come back from a car boot sale. He's got this kind of like <laughs> yeah, DL- DLT is thirty nine by the yeah. old rules. You know what I mean? The idea that DLT is is significantly younger than me in this in this effort, it's, <laughs> it's terrifying. It's monstrous. Because of course, I mean, to he, see this. he does look like he, he, he's thirty nine, but he doesn't look as if the midlife crisis has ever affected him. Affected him really, mm-hmm. is it? And he looks like what he is—a DJ who actually at home has no records whatsoever. For whom you know this is purely a kind of professional sort of engagement, you know, and for whom yes. being on something like Top of the Pops is really. It's for him a kind of transitional career step or whatever. He'd be much more happy and at home on a, on top, a top Gear type show or whatever, discussing the various merits of cross-ply and radial tyres. Mm. Yes, and of course he was just about to host the, oh, what was it called? The Golden, Golden Oldie, Oldie Picture, Picture Show. show. Mm, mm, mm. My God, I've seen some clips from that. Unfortunately, there's not a... F- there's not a full episode available on YouTube at the minute, so you don't get to see him introducing the clips. But what clips are there are quite astounding. I mean, it was a TV show that basically said, oh, let's take all these old records and and make pop videos for them. Taylor, you've you've seen a couple, haven't you? Yeah, I've got a couple. (laughs) You'll never never see anything like it. It's it's fantastic. What's your favourite? Uh, or most most memorable? The the best one they ever did was uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. Um, which is accompanied by a film of people at a pick-your-own-strawberries farm. <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 only, the only thing I really remember about it was the bit where it goes, uh, da, 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 it's a big zoom-in on a strawberry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can quite convey how fantastic this is in words. But, but there was a, there was a video a made for that, for Strawberry Fields Forever anyway. Wasn't yeah, it? precisely, but what's they obviously the, just the thought... They obviously just thought it wasn't good enough. Like it had the <laughs> Beatles in it, in it, and it was psychedelic and stuff. The other thing about DLT is that he's uh, obviously really hard. It's really unpleasant. He's one of these light entertainment personalities who didn't right. necessarily have the image of hard men. But when you look at them, you can see you would not 
want to get into any kind of physical altercation with this man. You would crawl away from it. He's not a nice man. There's a few of them. Uh, Tommy Cannon is another one. You look at Tommy Cannon, they rock. Just mm. Ted Rogers, more animal than man. It's 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 not pleasant at all. <laughs> it, there's something really unsettling about the DLT's presence on TV. For all this cuddly stuff, he comes on, he says, <laughs> presenting tonight, it's Butch Davis and the Sundance Pilchard, which is, it's... Yeah, he did. He did lean on the pilchard motif quite a lot, didn't he, throughout his career? It's not even a joke. There's not there's not any way in which that has the structure or... or it, it's not a joke. It's not. Mm. So, Taylor, if there was a cage fight between every single presenter of Top of the Pops, you'd say you'd say that DLT would come out on top? Savile, yeah. Savile? If they were, yeah, you'd end up with... Savile with his thighs wrapped round DLT's neck and his ankles crossed. Mm. Great wrestling mm-hmm. move. Um, and then a DLT trying to hook the eye. <laughs> yeah, and then in the in another corner of the cage, just a mound of everyone, soft lads in satin tour yeah. jackets, just making a low, low groaning sound. Yeah, absolutely. Who's going down first then? Alan Freeman, Kid Jensen, tied up down in the fucking ball. <laughs> <laughs> so who's 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 gonna who's gonna suffer that? I, don't, I can't see Mike Reed lasting very long. Uh, Andy Peebles out like yeah. out like a light. Yeah, I, mean, I think Kid Jensen might be able to handle himself. Well, we to to an extent. It's Canadians, isn't it? They're an unknown quantity. Yeah, They're never quite definitely. sure. Peter Powell's got no fucking chance. <laughs> that, well. Yeah, he got a note from his mum. <laughs> so that's DLT taken care of for the minute. Um, Gary Davis, Taylor, do you want to describe what Gary Davis has got on? Yeah, he's, the new fresh face of, of 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 Radio One. Yeah, he's dressed like Gerard Malanga. He's got this kind of <laughs> leather fetish wear, he's, but he's got it a bit wrong. It's like the leather jacket, leather trousers, and a white t-shirt, but. His leather jacket has got a sort of furry collar and like an elasticated yeah. waistband. It's one of those yeah. leather jackets that isn't really, you know what I mean? It doesn't. It's one of them. It's one of them leather it. jackets that. It's one of them leather jackets that you you'd be you know you you pester your mum for one for Christmas or birthday, and she gets that, and you're like, mum, no, and just sulk for the rest of the day because you, you know you're only going to get like two weeks worth of wear out of it. You know, not the kind of jacket you could stencil a crass logo on the back of. No, it's the sort of jacket that might have a little kind of uh, logo of a, of a flying eagle or something on the uh, over the where the breast pocket would be. It's just yeah, and on a, and on the inside it would have uh, a lining made out of an old map or <laughs> or something pastely and shit. <laughs> it's just not the leather jacket anybody really wants, is it? <laughs> So, Gary Davis, he was the former manager of a disco in Manchester, which is a bit alarming, uh, given the civilian undertones. Uh, But he started DJing at Piccadilly Radio in 1979. He joined Radio 1 in 1982 to present a Saturday night show and was offered the presenting gig on Top of the Pops soon after because he was young. Young, free and single and likes to mingle, as he used to say. 
Yeah, his, his whole image was based on how attractive he was to women. Mm. It's a, a, a really strange thing in retrospect that, that, that people did fall for it. People were told this is an attractive man. Yeah. Uh, and he did have a large female following. And you look at him now, it's it's just incomprehensible. Mm. And also, they they introduced themselves as saying, it's the Manchester lads mm. presenting the show tonight. Well, okay, DLT, but Gary Davis, yeah, who knew? That he was from Manchester, like from the mean streets of Weatherfield, you know. I'll go. I'll go a foot of our stairs. Is mm. how he was not from Hemel Hempstead, or mm. it's just, uh, uh, yeah. By 1984, he's in the afternoon slot, uh, which he took off DLT. <sighs> DLT. Definitely on the downward. Um, Downward curve of his uh, of his Radio One career there. Yeah, yeah. Mind it's... you, it is nineteen eighty fucking four. Well, exactly. Yeah, really. The fact that he's on the curve at all is uh, pretty, pretty, pretty appalling. Really. Uh, you know, they were long due a kind of. You know, these people were were kind of you know ripe for a kind of uh, a Matthew Bannister cull really for quite about ten years really, weren't they? Yeah, he's got about a decade left in him, hasn't he, Dio? That that's frightening, isn't it? At this point, yeah. Mm, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And even then he feels, you know, a bit like status quo, demonstrating outside Radio 1, who wouldn't believe that Feather sings anymore. It's like, for crying out loud, man, you're about a quarter of a century past his cell by day. But there's nothing else he can do. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, look at him. He's a, he's a failure as a human being. He's a fail, mm-hmm. failure as an adult. Um, what what's he going to do? He's just clinging on. It's the the great curse of TV presenters. What they do is essentially worthless. Um, so you can't turn your hand to anything else once once your numbers up. Yeah, and also he's defined himself too well as the hairy cornflake, and he's really he's left him nowhere. He's painted himself into a hairy corner, basically. And time for another edition of Top of the Pops with Butch Davis and the Sundance Pilchard. Yes, it's the Manchester Lads presenting the show tonight. Right. And it's also the Manchester Lads right. starting off the show tonight yeah. with a song called What Difference Does It Make? Here are the Smiths. DLT and Gary Davis point out that they come from Manchester, which is something people from Manchester never do, and introduce the Smiths. Whilst doing so, Gary Davis chops Travis in the throat in a comedic manner. Good. Now, I'm not going to say much about the Smiths because, to my mind, they're like the Doors. They're a good enough band. There's some decent tunes there. But the lead singer's a bellend. And that's all I know about the Smiths and that's all I care to know. So, let's... Let's let's hear it from your point of view, David. How important were the Smiths at university? Oh no, I mean this 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 felt really kind of significant and really sort of bracing at the time. I mean, in a sense, what you got in the sixties, you know, the, the pop music, whatever was happening, felt like a kind of a sort of strong reaction against the sort of the monochrome nature of culture. You know, black and white TV, the sort of the eternal greyness of existence or whatever. And then by this point, I mean, Top of the Pops has already become very overflood and very overlit with kind of mauve strobes or whatever. And there's a fe- feeling that culturally everything's a bit overcolorized, and they represent a kind of a reaction against color, a retreat from color back into this sort of indie kind of monochrome, this kind of one phase or sadness, whatever. And in a way, that's that, that, that there is something, um, there is something all strangely kind of refreshing about that, that, you know, that kind of sort of, 
you know, that reminder of kitchen sink reality or whatever, and you know, in the midst of all this kind of slightly false gordness, etc., etc. I think that was that was part of his appeal. It's a slightly adolescent gesture. Of course, later on, when we talk about reaction against colour, you realise that Morrissey actually was reacting against music of colour, i.e., you know, reggae, Diana Ross, etc., etc. And the thing about the Smiths, eventually, what what is kind of annoying is that they're the first group since punk who haven't really who refuse to engage with black music. Who are going back mm. to this very kind of Caucasian sort of jingly jangly, um, um, you know, music style that, that really in which there are sort of no funk, disco, reggae, whatever elements whatsoever, and uh, that's a slightly more kind of um, depressing break that they make there. The set is a radical departure from the sparseness of the 1970s. Uh, and, you know, they've actually spent some money on, on some lights and, you know, it looks like, like the best disco in, in town, really. Well, the best disco in Nottingham, Al. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's be clear. Um, the best disco in London did, did not look like that, even in 1984. No. So, um, a Morrissey in the middle of it... In, to my mind, he looks like some sulky lad who's been dragged out on a works due to Barry Noble's Astoria, and he's not <laughs> having a good time. But there's one song that comes on that he actually likes, and he's gone out to dance to it, and then he realises that, that no one else is dancing to it, but he's going to brazen it out anyway. I mean, it does is, look a bit weird. <laughs> and that song is by the Smiths. Yes, yeah. That's that's the re- that's the really terrible thing. Actually, I did get this when I used to do my club in '84. You get people who come there, sit sullenly, and then of course I'd whack on. What difference does it make? And they would come out and ostentatious this sort of floor, sort of emptied of like the kind of the hip hop fans or whatever. Then it would come on, and they would kind of sashay around, you know, like arms aloft or whatever. Um, you know, doing the one the one foot shuffle. You can't walk and, off, um, can you? You've, you've yeah, set your then, marker down. And, and then yes, that's right. And then uh, back down, they'd sit again. Taylor, what are you what are you feeling? Is this is this stirring anything in your musical loins as an eleven year old? Well, this is a couple of months before I got into the Smiths. I got into the Smiths with William. It was really nothing, which I had, right. uh, uh, and thought was incredible. Uh, but yeah, at, at this point, I mean, this I I would have seen this, but I don't remember it at all. People say that every time the Smiths were on top of the pops, it was like an event. This. This feels a bit like a non-event. There's no flowers. There's no. Uh, he doesn't do anything. Yeah, he stops. Of... He stops the uh, gladioli in the back pocket after after this charming man. Yeah. This when you look at this, you it is very obvious when you look at Morrissey in this clip. You can see the seed of the shithead to come. But it it's easy to say that in respect. It's like Fidel Castro. It's yeah. e- easy to look back and say, "Oh, we should have known," but. Yeah, no, the, I, I can see how you'd have been carried away with it. I disagree with David that there's no funk in the Swiss music, by the way. Johnny Marr was a massive funk head, and uh, if you listen to what he's playing, it's all loads of it's ripped off like Nile Rogers and stuff. It's just they have the least funky drummer in the world. Is like even more than Rick Buckler, right? This is like the, the whitest drummer that you could ever hear. Um, so it's this sort of clod-opping feel to all the music. But, yeah, this yeah, one... I mean, in, in fairness to Johnny Marr, yeah, definitely. I mean, he has that kind of taste and he is sort of trying a bit. And, I mean, and, and there is... And, I mean, obviously the funkiest thing about it there isn't, is, is his guitar. But, but yeah, it's kind of... It's, it's, it's something that's sort of suppressed and drowned out by other factors mm. of the Smiths. And also, in fairness to Johnny Marr, he looks really cool yeah, in this yeah. clip. It's like Morrissey hasn't really made an effort for this one. But... Uh, Johnny Marr looks uh, looks really good. Oh, he's a very small man playing a very big guitar. But it's yeah, you've got to say that's uh, 
He's a very good-looking chap. This song would only go up one place the following week, where it peaked. Uh, they'd never get any higher than number 10 in the charts uh, in during their normal career, but a re-release of This Charming Man would get to number 8 in 1992. What a great start to the show from the Smiths. Next is a young man who must have a big smile across his face permanently. He's had some great records out, not the least of which is this one at number 32. With Wouldn't It Be Good, here's Nick Kershaw. DLT has three women on the go. But one's a goth who stares at him in disdain. Did you notice Dude, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. She's likes. What the just, fuck was she doing there? I think she'd just been pushed into this. Just you over there. You look a bit weird. Go over there now. Stand there. What? What? No, just stand there. You don't have to do it. Just stand there. <laughs> just this blank stare. Just like oh god. Yeah. Or even more active than that. Active reproach. She says, I, "I am from thirty years hence. I stare with you the reproach of the twenty first century." Yes, definitely, yes. And DLT introduces the debut of Nick Kershaw. He was born in Bristol and grew up in Ipswich. And before this, he was in a jazz-funk covers band called Fusion. His first single, I Won't Let the Sun Go Down On Me, flopped. This is his second, and as I've said, it's his Top of the Pops debut. And I think this is a prime example of the serious musician who's been kind of like pushed into being a pop gonk. Mm. Mm. I think though that there was a this was just something that happened at this time. There was not just Nick Kershaw, but Howard Jones as well, and it was the first sign of like you know of what happened up until that point is people like ABC, Depeche Mode, Simple Minds, various people that you know part of the whole kind of new pop thing in the early eighties. You could trace them back to mm. punk. They'd had some sort of punk origin, and there was some sort of like sort of implicit sort of spiky sort of radicalism in their music or whatever that, that made them left field even though they kind of you know they were there to be kind of subvert top of the pops in some way they were there to bring some sort of you know smuggle in some sort of attitude or whatever with someone like Nick Kershaw and Howard Jones you realise all they've done is sort of whack you know spike tease up their hair a bit whack in some highlights and you know just give themselves a kind of spray on veneer of like post-punk electro-poppiness or whatever, but they're actually just really, yeah, it doesn't try to, of course, a jazz fusion band. They're just sort of old muso songwritery hacks um, just trying to sort of get with the kind of 80s look. Um, and it was only a matter of time before, like, you know, the, these, these kind of geezers sort of trundled in, basically sort of supplied, you know, essentially sort of M.O.R. with a kind of very superficial sort of modern sheen or whatever. And, I mean, it, although it's a giveaway, man, the way to look at him, I mean, even a European wouldn't dress that badly. I mean, you know, with the snood and the kind of, you know, and that kind of ridiculous white border suit, it's somebody that's like sort of, you know, it's such a cack-handed attempt at sort of second-hand new romanticism. Yeah, he's got this He's got this fancy white jacket with sort of elaborate fastenings on it, a snood, highlight, highlighted mullet. And fing- yeah. fingerless gloves. It's like a cross between... Uh, really long fingerless gloves as well. Yeah, for what must have been quite short fingers. It's like, it's a cr- it looks like a cross between Blake Seven and Albert Steptoe. Well, I've, I've got down Futurist Little Chef. <laughs> you know, if, if Future Chef kind of like rebranded <laughs> itself in, in 2050, yeah, very, they'd all look like Nick Kershaw. Very Little Chef. I, don't, I mean, as a, as <laughs> speaking as not a giant myself, I, you know... But yes, he was a very, very small man, Nick Kershaw. And what he didn't seem to understand, I'm 
fairly convinced that he had a stylist, right? I don't, he doesn't strike me as the sort of bloke who'd go out and buy those clothes. I think he was no. probably being styled. Um, and whoever did it didn't understand, like, the, uh, for instance, like how short men should not have big hair, right? As Kevin Keegan never right. understood. It's like, I know this being a bit of a short ass. If you, uh, if you wear anything or have anything on you that's too big or too eye-catching, it looks like it's wearing you. Um, and this is what's right. happened to Nick Kershaw, which is what's even funnier is that in the video to uh, Wouldn't It Be Good, which they obviously spent a lot of money on, and yet yes, here he is did, on yeah. top of the pops himself, and they're not showing it. He's got that suit with a film playing on it. It's like, I can't yes. think of a, any example of clothing that could possibly be more eye-catching than a suit with a film playing on it. It's, no, it's, because that, it was made out of the same material as um, Marlon Brando's suit in Superman. Is that so? Yes. Oh. But Marlon Brando was a little bit bigger than Nick Kershaw, even then. Yeah, wouldn't it be good to be in your shoes? They probably wouldn't fit you, Nick. You, I think you'd look even more like a clown. Well, I mean, before we before we move away from his outfit, um, just want to point out that the, apparently the gloves were there to cover up his wedding ring. Because the record company wanted to uh, wanted him to remove the ring uh, for you know to attract lots of uh, teeny fans, uh, he wasn't having any of it. So a compromise was the long fingerless gloves, which later caught on with the fans. So there you go. And of course, he's wearing the mm. snood, mm. the famous snood, which mm. was you know it was the albatross around his neck, if you will. But yeah, the most mm. the most significant thing about this is definitely yeah the not in 1984. Uh, 1984 is all about pop music sailing towards the event horizon of the black hole that was Band Aid. Um, yeah, and w- one of the ways that it started to tear itself apart as it approached this was that all the new chart acts uh, were either ex-punks or ex-proggers, and you can see it a mile off when you look like the. Uh, Kershaw is obviously one of the ex-proggers, right? There's him, uh, Howard Jones, King, Kajagoogoo, uh, Tears for Fears. You, you, you know that these people um, were, were, you know, listening to either Jazz Fusion or, or Yes, like, mm. or still are, you know, but were listening exclusively to that two years ago. They just put a bit of slap on and and uh, and, and gone for the gone for the shiny coin. Mm. Uh, Nick looks massively uncomfortable as he grinds on stage, surrounded by frightening-looking laser-light spotlights and whoops from the audience. I mean, by this time, of course, the audience have been absolutely prodded with a stick to enjoy themselves, aren't they? And there's no need for it. You, you, this is not a kind of song you can go, woo, to, is it? That's certainly true, yeah. And at one point, the camera pans in with his eyes closed and his hands behind his head, looking for all the world as if he's getting a nosh. Oh, this is this is when he this is when he's singing Don't Wanna Be Here No More or whatever it is, with his eyes tightly screwed. It's like really feeling it, really meaning every word of it. Mm. That's true actually about Nick Kershaw. I remember thinking at the time, Nick Kershaw would never listen to Nick Kershaw records and he has the air of somebody who would like it was the last thing in the world he'd do is listen to a, a Nick Kershaw record. He's just thinking of the recording studio he's going to build in his barn once he's got this shit out of the way. <laughs> and of course, he's got a synth on stage, but it's right to the side, isn't it? 
I mean, he's he's on a bare stage with a synth pushed right against the wall, which he has to awkward, awkwardly turn around and play. Yeah, they make him play the... Or he chooses to play that synth because he doesn't know what to do with his hands. If you're watching him, he's just on the stage. He hasn't even got a mic. He's just there miming. doesn't know what to do with his hands. He's not a natural mover. He's not a natural performer. I mean, obviously, the question that needs to be asked is, Howard Jones or Nick Kershaw, where do you stand? Where did you stand on that important fault line in 1984? They were both pretty despicable, but of course, Howard Jones made humans live. And I think that's just, you know, that's like, hey, all lives matter. <laughs> uh, I think, that was, you know, that, 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 that really counts against him for me. Taylor? Well, Howard Jones had better tunes, but the, that kind of appalling sanctimony of his lyrics is just, I remember he was a regular in Smash Hits and he'd always be there lecturing the kids about, you know, eating meat and not being a bigot and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, don't try and live your life in one day. Well, <laughs> it's good advice. It is. Unless you're a mayfly, of course, then you pretty much fucking have to, don't you? <laughs> anyway, the single jumped right up to number 14 and would spend three weeks at number four. I Won't Let the Sun Go Down On Me was re-released in the summer and went to number two. Fucking hell. He nearly had a number one hit single. He'd have another six top 40 hits, but chart-wise he was pretty much done by 1985, although he did go on to write the one and only for Chesney Hawks in 1991 which probably meant an extension on the studio in the barn. Yeah, upgraded to 256 track. <laughs> well, the last time our next band were on top of the box, that was around about nine months ago with a song called Garden Party. They're back with Punch and Judy. Here are Marillion. <laughs> Gary Davis has only one woman with him, but then again, he is the YTS lad. And he announces the return of Marillion. They were formed in Aylesbury. In, I'm going to keep that in. Fuck it. They were formed in Aylesbury in 1979 and were seen as the lone standard bearers of neo prog in the early 80s. Were constantly dismissed by the music press as uh, Gabriel era Genesis imitators. They'd already had two hits in 1983. He knows you know and Garden Party. And this is the first single from the new LP, Fugazi, and it's gone straight in at number 29. Yeah, it's... I mean... <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. Shall we move on <laughs> to the next song? <laughs> yeah, I don't think we should tarry too long on the, sort of, you know, the subject of ruling, but, I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary, really. I suppose it's clearly channelling Peter Gabriel. Yeah. Uh, although I think on this occasion there's an attempt to sort of mask that with a little element, a bit of face paint to give it a sort of slightly more up-to-date adamant feel. Um, but I can anything with, with Fish, I mean, he's just this enormous geezer. And I just imagine that at every stage in his life when he sort of tried to do this kind of thing, that um, it was that whether it was family, friends, eventually a record company or whatever, or an art person, they were too shit scared to say to him, look, mate, this has been seriously done before, man. I don't know what you're trying to think here. You know, he's just this... It looks like this kind of big, raving, loping, psychopathic loon that if you were to kind of, um, you know, mention to him that his act was perhaps a touch derivative, would like, you know, put, tear your head off at the roots. Um, so that's the only way I can account for it, really, the whole fish thing. Not so much Beowulf as Beowulf. A Taylor, fish versus Dave Lee Travis. Uh, oh, God. I don't know. I can tell you what, though. I'd pay for that. Yeah, I would as well. Two members of Zoo... 
are seen trying to skip along to the opening bars of this song and then laugh and give up. Yeah, but it's in 17.9, isn't it? It's a time signature. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. Even when, as you well know, I was a Merillion fan at the age of about 12. Yes, we, we, we need to come to this, Taylor. You know yeah. an article in fact, the in, about being a Merillion fan at this age. Yeah, I mean, a very passive kind of fan because I was 12. You know, you don't really just listen to the records. But, yeah, you're going to ask me about this now. Yes, I am. Yeah, what was it? What was it about them that, that appealed to you? Well, it, they, I think to a to a, a, a twelve year old, they have the right mixture uh, of pompous self pity, uh, showboating self regard, and uh, ludicrously overreaching ambition, which spoke to me at that age. You know, because that's what it's like when you're twelve or thirteen. I, now I'm an old man. It's the exact opposite. It's all about uh, self loathing and self neglect and. Uh, very narrow horizons, but no, at that age it seemed to it, it, it seemed to be a world of musical possibilities. Um, but I didn't know did anything. Was, did you think it was growing up music? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I because I didn't know anything. You see, it's like I, you're twelve and you, you're very impressionable, very easily impressed. Fish looks like a new romantic Caliban with painted face and thick comedy eyebrows. 30 years before teenage girls adopted that very same look. Yeah, and he's got this sort of paint on him, but it's not like a proper Peter Gabriel paint job. It's like he's just been decorating the loft in a (laughs) psychedelic mural and he's got it all down, the sort of shabby grey clothes that he wore to do it. It's it's the most half-arsed attempt at... uh, theatrical rock I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he does sort of lumber around the stage in an unnerving way, like like some sort of enormous squaddy. He was a bit pissed up when he's trying to kind of, you know, engage people in conversation in a pub and everyone's desperate to sort of avoid their avoid his eyes. That kind of unnerving effect of it has it. We're at a stage now, nineteen eighty four, where, you know, people playing synths uh is is commonplace and it's just just a thing now. Uh but I think Marillion have overdone it on the synth front, haven't they? Do, do, do you want to guess how many synths there were on that stage? Zero. I counted yeah, eight. Eight synths in two bags. Yeah, arranged in the in descending order of size. So he's got like a, a yeah. big sort of DX seven or something at the bottom. Then at the top he's got like a little Casio <laughs> Vialto. It's almost yeah. like a joke. It's like a uh, like the synth equivalent of double neck guitar, you know, just this just yeah. complete excess, like too many synths. Surely by 1984, you could just get one that had all those sounds on it. Well, you'd think, yeah. wouldn't you? But it is proper music played by proper musicians, isn't it? But when, yeah, when you, you can see when you look at them that they came out of uh, the new wave of British heavy metal, like the band. If you look at the band, they've all got the sort of the frothy mullets and the. Uh, the tight jeans and white trainers. Yes. It's uh, it, it and it's like an insight into how much prog there really was in that music as well. Like if you listen to a uh, number of the Beast and records like that, there's this sort of prog waiting to burst through the through the metal surface. You know, it's like that's where they came from and that's what they are. So Punch and Judy would drop three places and go out of the charts two weeks later, but they'd have two top five hits with Kaylee and Lavender the following year and be in the charts on a regular basis right up to the mid-90s. Fucking hell, when did Fish leave? Oh, I don't know. They, 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 had a, they got a John John in, didn't they? Yes, they did, yeah. It fish, was- fish. <laughs> 
they are a superb band, Marillion there for you. Now then, four places below that at number 33 in the charts, Elbow Bones and the Racketeers. Ever wondered what a night New York was like? DLT is surrounded by four women as he bigs up Marillion and then asks if we've ever wondered what a night in New York would be like. <laughs> Fucking hell, can you imagine what a night in New York would be like with DLT? <laughs> it would end badly, yeah, wouldn't it? Very out of his depth. <laughs> Elbow Bones and the Racketeers were formed by John Rinske, a fashion photographer mm. from Detroit who was in with Kid Creole. And the Racketeers were assorted Kid Creole acolytes, including singer Stephanie Fuller. It's his second week in the charts. Uh, And it was hanging at number 33. So we're clearly at the stage now where uh, expensive videos were a big deal on top of the pops. And I'm very surprised watching this episode that this is the first episode, uh, this is the first video that we've actually seen. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't really quite feel, I mean, it's just a a performance largely, isn't it? With like, you know, just a rather extravagantly staged performance. Um, I mean, you know, I can only commend this for the fact that Kid Creole, you know, August August Darnell was, um, you know, involved with it. Um, and Kid Creole were fantastic. Um, they were in, in the early eighties, you know, in terms mm. of that kind of Zeddy type kind of like highly kind of hip sort of you know retro um, new pop sort of. You know, he was actually at the top of his game with all of that. Also, a lovely bloke. I interviewed him mm. about ten years ago, and it was just it was just an interview. It wasn't a photo shoot or whatever. And it was just the roundhouse. He was doing some musical, and he turned up really sort of real gent. And um, but he turned up like ten in the morning to this thing. He wasn't in like his kind of like torn leggings or anything like that or sweatshirt. It was absolutely dressed to the absolute nines as Kid Creole, tie, right down to the type in, you know, and the fedora and like that. You know, that is just that is just him. It's what he does. You know, at the same time, he was just an absolutely lovely, friendly, amiable chap. Um, but um, but this, it's it's this is almost like the kind of midpoint between in the culture between Kid Creole and the Coconuts and I don't know jukebox musicals or something. You know, it's just. Um, mm. um, and that's reflected in the video because that's essentially yeah. Bugsy Malone, yeah. but yeah. with grown-ups. Yeah. That's right. And also, and also, one thing to to notice as well: this is the first, and I think only sighting of black people on this episode of Top of the Pops. Yes, that's a bit anomalous, isn't it? Yeah, maybe it would. I mean, maybe that's why it was featured, despite the fact that it all it had only just t- held the position at thirty-three. Maybe someone thought, "Shit, yeah, we need." Uh, nah. Yeah, because yeah, that's what the BBC are like, you know. Yeah, yeah Mor- Morrissey, uh, Morrissey was on earlier taking notes for a statement he'd make 18 months later saying that to get on top of the boxing, you have to be by law yeah, black. Right. Yes, he talked about a conspiracy in favour yeah. of black music. Yeah, well, there's not much evidence of it here. No. God, Morrissey's a twat, isn't he? Yes. Taylor, what's this doing for you? Anything? Uh, no, this is a blank space in my memory, and I find it a little bit disturbing to think that there was a record that was in the top 40 when I was 11, that, of which I have no memory at all. It's like the <clears throat> the missing day in the week of a serial killer. <laughs> it's like this. It's it frightening that it's not there. Uh, but I, I'm not missing much. It's not. I mean, this is. It's like the beginning of that 80s thing where aspirational equals nostalgic and clever equals ironic yeah. you know what i mean there's that it's just like a culturally it's just like a, a, a just a, a big sink so the single would stay at number 33 the following week and the week after that and the week after that before dropping out and the band never troubled the charts again four weeks at number 33 that's amazing isn't it hmm 
How do you do that? Mm, you, c- uh, you couldn't uh, even yeah. rig it. It's probably a record. Yes. Bands and the Racketeers in Mighty New York. Okay, here's the band making their debut on Top of the Pops tonight. They are Rob, Rick, and Maggie. The song is called Soul Train. The band, Swan's Way. Gary Davis is up in the scaffolding with loads of women and his hand resting awkwardly on an Asian girl's shoulder as he introduces Swan's Way. Formed by three musicians who lived on the same street in Birmingham in 1982, their first single flopped, but a filmed appearance on the tube in late 1983, which was repeated and followed up with a live performance, pushed this song into the chart where it currently sits at number 34. Now we need to talk about Channel 4, don't we, chaps? Been on the air for what? 18 months or so. About that, yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, people go on how influential MTV was on the charts of the 1980s, but in the UK, Channel 4, 4 was far more important, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, all of a sudden, you have a handful of new music shows, things like mm. Airsay, Rockers Roadshow, Max Headroom, Wired, Club X and, and The Tube. And, you know, Top of the Pops is has always been this chart show but all of a sudden, you've got other programs that that are pushing things into the chart. I mean, one of the things about the seventies is that, like, it was there was this always felt like it was this desperate, desperate shortage of pop. Um, you know, you just had two or three mm. little outlets. You know, little morsels of tinsel, like you know, top of the pops of the seventies, or maybe the algorithms or whatever. But I think by the eighties, you're really getting this um, sense that there is actually an overload of pop. You're almost getting the feeling there's actually too much of it. Mm. Um, that you know, they could do with some sort of pop coal, basically, you know, like sort of humane chappies with like shotguns kind of roving out into <laughs> the kind of, you know, onto the pop tundra and like, you know, massacring a few of them because it really is beginning to um, feel <laughs> like, you know, there, there was this just great sense of overload now. And it's just like, you know, it's lots of people from like mm. the 50s, 60s, 70s still around, but, you know, coupled with the kind of, you know, the rise of the new lot. And really, it's suddenly becoming. It's feeling very, very crowded, overlit, um, and ubiquitous all of a sudden. Taylor, the tube, um, it gets a surprisingly small amount of love nowadays, doesn't it? Yeah, I never watched it much. I didn't. It was um, partly... Did you have Channel 4 at your house? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was not very good reception. That was part of the reason why. It was the mm. better reception on the little black and white portable that we have that we take away to like the static caravan in the summer so sneak in and watch things like the comic strip presents on that and sit there going well it's not it's it's not very funny but it's it's rude um yeah but yeah the red triangle films which on your portable would be kind of like dark gray triangle films yeah but (laughs) i remember one time i remember one time my sister when she was 14 uh, convinced my mum and dad that her, her and her mate had to stay up to watch Sebastian, the uh, Derek Jarman film, which featured two blokes bumming against a mountain, that she had to stay up and watch it for geography homework. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was so proud of her. <laughs> yeah, it's also, also, my parents were the sort of... Uh, uh, sort of working class parents who uh, sort of wanted to go up in the world and that meant not not watching dirty stuff like you know sort of uh, things where people swear and stuff on the TV um, 
And I was like, I want to watch the tube. There was somebody on. I want to watch the tube. Because I think it might have been after the groovy fuckers business. And it was like, no, you're not going to watch that film. And I was like, no, no, go on. So while they were out of the room, I put the telly on, switched it to Channel 4. Just as they came back in the room, a bloke took his trousers down and waved his ass at the camera. And that was that was the end of me ever being able to watch the tube until I was uh, quite a lot older. But I didn't miss it. I don't I don't like that sort of ironic smugness of uh, Jules Holland, and I never liked uh, that Paulie Yates thing of like sort of legging down the Wag Club and all this sort of stuff. I wasn't interested in that world. I didn't like it. Didn't want to know anything about it. Um, and the tube, especially considering it was uh, made great play of the fact that it was filmed in Newcastle, had a real uh, a real sort of smug London feel to it that didn't mean a lot to me out in the Yeah, I think I always felt right at that point, and I mean, I was in my early 20s at the time, that the tube seemed to think it was a lot hipper and a lot cleverer than it actually was. I mean, I was used to the sort of, the level of discourse you get in the music press, say like an enemy or whatever, was really pretty high, and to try and transcribe that attitude on the TV, it was always going to fall way short. And it was almost like, you know, also in the content of the show, it was just like, hey, we're not going to give you the kind of thing we've got to, on top of the pops, we're going to play Annie Lennox. Oh, wow, you know. And it's just like, great. And it almost like it was summed up when you got to that kind of thing with Jules Holland saying, no. all you groovy fuckers. And then, of course, you know, had to kind of like roll back cravenly on that particular kind of excess. Uh, you know, it just showed mm. how desperately circumscribed they were by the fact they're working on TV. So there seemed to be a lot of, you know, there seemed to be sort of a show that was a little bit too sort of pleased with itself. It wasn't really able to kind of, mm. I don't know, be sort of I don't know, an enemy on TV or whatever. So let's talk about the song, shall we? Because... You know, the tube basically got this song into the charts. You can contend that this is the first of three songs that are in the charts because of the tube. So yeah, it's it's very very nineteen eighty four is this song actually just in terms of almost like you know the, the, the almost like the Thompson Twenty type layout of the kind of you know the haughty female kind of on stage percussion or whatever, and the fact they kind of mention soul in such a conspicuous <laughs> way because they're you know they're, they're kind of set up in such a way as. The only way they can actually sort of exude any soul is just by mentioning it a lot and hopefully acquiring it by osmosis. Um, you know, but there was this kind of big preoccupation about soul at the time by people um, mm. who had this kind of weird sort of envy of the authenticity and spontaneity, supposedly, of black music and culture. Not not necessarily the most recent stuff, the disco or the hip hop, but uh, you know, the sixties and seventies stuff, the authentic soul, real blackness of things. Mm. And, you know, and it just seems to be sort of vaguely kind of leading to that. Um, yeah, it's like it's like the the thing about white musicians a lot, especially like indie musicians now. It's not that they've got a problem with with uh, with black musicians. It's just they don't like it when they're black and alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, just a little bit of safe distance, and you know, they yes. patronise them yeah. in peace. Curtis Marvin, R.I.P. Yeah, yeah, one, one yeah. Bob Marley. Yeah. yeah, can you imagine oh. people on the actual Soul Train dancing to this though? <laughs> no, I think they would be politely ushered away and uh, informed that they got the wrong studio. Uh, definitely, <laughs> it's just all a bit shabby, isn't it? It's like it's a bit embarrassing. They're named after the only bit anyone's ever read of "A la recherche du temps perdu," and it's uh, the singer looks like uh, you know those films where a middle class bloke becomes a football league yeah. and like falls in with the. He's got that look about him, you know, like. Uh, it's all a bit, it's all a bit tawdry. So Soul Train moved up to number 20 the next week, but no further. The two singles that they also released that year failed to dent the top 40 and they split up in 1985. The Soul Train was decommissioned. Oh, Dr. Beachy. 
It's time now to have a look at the top 40 with Dave. Uh, no, I don't want to do it. I'm sorry. Fiverr? Number 40 is a chart entry from Slade with Run, Run Away. And at 39, Lionel Richie is running with the night. 38, this week it's Hold Me Now from the Thompson Twin. And a brand new entry at 37 is One Small Day from Ultravox. Chart entry at 36, Break Machine and Street Dance. And at 35, Speed Your Love to Me from Simple Minds. Another chart entry at number 34 is Swan's Way and Soul Train. And still at 33, Elbow Bones and the Racketeers and Night in New York. 32, Nick Kershaw, Wouldn't It Be Good? And a chart entry at 31, 99 Red Balloons from Nina. Number 30 is a chart entry also, Somebody's Watching Me from Rockwell. And Marillion have a new entry at 29 with Punch and Judy. 28, Where Were You Hiding When the Storm Broke from the Alarm? And Shannon with Let the Music Play are at number 27. We have a new entry at 26, and you're going to have a look at a brand new video now from Madness with Markle Kine. DLT and Gary Davis go through a pantomime of bribery before announcing the bottom end of the charts, going into Michael Caine. The 18th single release from Madness, the follow-up to The Sun and the Rain, and the first single from the new LP, Keep Moving. Not only does it feature the voice of Michael Caine, who originally knocked them back but was talked into doing it by his daughter, it also doesn't feature Suggs on vocals. It's Carl Smith, formerly known as Chaz Smash. And obviously, because it's Madness, it's a video clip. Now, David, this is the debut of Serious Madness, isn't it? Yeah, Mature Madness. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's not, I don't suppose they could spend the rest of their in like tight trousers and doing the old kind of bummer conga, you know, it was just like bummer <laughs> uh, conga. But um, you know, but you know, they're obviously there's a huge amount invested in them because they've been so successful that they're not just going to, you know, they're obviously going to sort of find some way or other, you know, to have them mm. carry on. But really, it gets a bit tricky. You know, it culminates in doing a version of Scrooge Blitch's Sweetie Girl. You know, it's just seems yeah. wholly incorrect to me. And so by this stage, it's almost like I mean, the thing about madness is you know, the madness is this house of fun and baggy trousers and you know, unabashed yeah. pop, you know, for like, you know, for little, you know, kiddies discos and grown-ups who don't give a shit to sort of, you know, bop around to whatever. And um, I don't know, maybe they could have tried to do a sort of, you know, be like Chaz and Dave or something, just do what they do forever, you know, and not try and sort of do something that's slightly yeah. more shaded and earnest. Um, so, yeah, I don't really, I mean, this clearly has not, I mean, this has not gotten, gone down in sort of mad, madness legend, you know. It was only seeing this, in fact, that was reminded that they ever did it. But there's a lot invested in, in the video and everything. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's 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 the beginning of the end of Madness Phase One, you know. I yeah, you know. Then obviously got Retro Madness later on. Um, yeah, not great. Carl um, Smith, he was Chaz Smash, and he was always a slightly problematic member of Madness. I remember he was interviewed by mm. the Enemy in the early eighties. Says we don't mind who comes down to our gigs, you know, anybody on National Front, whoever, as long as they have a good time. And the rest of the band, <laughs> shut up, Chaz, you know. So he did shut up for a while, and now he's actually, you know, seems to be in the kind of. He's been allowed yeah, to sing. In quarantine for a while, yeah. Now finally, very much, very sing. much the uh, the Professor Griff of madness. Yes. <laughs> Taylor, you were in the you were in the in the zone. You know, you, yeah. your age group. Oh yeah, consensus at our school was that they'd lost it. We preferred really? the uh, we preferred the early nutty ones, but you listen to it now; it's quite a good record. It's not it's not a great record, but it's a good record. Yeah. Um, but it is a bit weird with that sort of Brian Ferry singing and mm. 
doesn't doesn't sound an awful lot like magic. No, I mean you're right. They've always been seen as a kids' band, which to my mind's just patently unfair because you know to me. Slade and the Sweet and and bands like that are kids' bands. Mm. I didn't feel I had to be 16 to get the most out of them. All I wanted to do was just run around the school disco and skid about on my knees at weddings and, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and the thing about kids' stuff is that when, when people who are accused of doing kids' stuff try uh, to stop doing kids' stuff and to mm. grow up a bit, it's always terrible. It's always, it's always more profound and... And more intelligent when when it's for kids, right? Yeah. Like when the goodies try and do social comment and stuff, it's always a bit a bit bad, you know. Mm. <laughs> you should you have to own it. You have to you know you have to do it right. Yeah. So the video is a pastiche of the Ipcris file and and is played almost completely deadpan. I yeah, mean, it should course... have been it should have been a parody of Jaws for the revenge yes <laughs> it's all uh, i think it's jaws for the revenge that he's in it, i know it, it might be jaws 3d but from memory i think it's jaws for the Revenge. it's definitely not jaws 5 cruel jaws because that's right. a that's an italian production that, yeah that yeah i mean the video's a disappointment as well isn't it i mean it's very nice and you just sitting there waiting for them to just go off on one and it, it just doesn't happen does it the thrill's gone hasn't it yeah the 80s are dying, and it's only 84. <laughs> yes. So the single jumped up to number 13 the following week and peaked at number 11, which was the first Madness single to miss the top 10 since The Prince, which was their debut. They split up two years later and then reformed to, to playing lots of feels to angry middle-aged skinheads. <laughs> it's a bit like, bit like West Ham Chelsea, isn't it? It's not, not, somewhere you want to, yeah. not, not somewhere you want to go. Certainly not somewhere you want to take your kids. No. Bit of a sort of uh, there'll be no uh, no bummer conga going on there, as it as it was known at Oxford University. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, now a lot of people know about that, don't they? It's time to look at the middle section of the charts now with you, Gary. No, I don't want to do it. Thousand dollars. And the twenty-five Howard Jones and What Is Love. At 24, Human Touch from Rick Springfield. At 23, Musical Youth and 16. Snowy White and Bird of Paradise is at number 22. At 21, Nobody Told Me, John Lennon. Thomas Dolby and Hyperactive at number 20. And at number 19, Manhattan Transfer with Spice of Life. At 18, Pipes of Peace, Paul McCartney. At 17, China Crisis and Wishful Thinking. At 16, it's Shaky and Bonnie with a rocking good way. At 15, I am what I am, Gloria Gaynor. Big Country and Wonderland are at number 14. And at 13, The Smiths and What Difference Does It Make? At 12, the love theme from the Thornbirds, Juan Martin. And at number 11, it's Echo and the Bunnymen with The Killing Moon. And we move back a little bit further down the chart to a record which was a new entry in at 37. One small day, we welcome back Ultravox. We have another chart rundown and more bollocks with fake money. And then we're introduced to Ultravox. Originally formed in 1974 as Tiger Lily, 1974. 
They went through a string of band names in the late 70s until they settled upon The Damned in 1977. (laughs) And then they found out a few weeks later that somebody else was using that name. So they changed their name to Ultravox. The new Damned. Yes. Lead singer John Fox was replaced in 1979 by Midge who'd previously been in Slick and the Rich Kids and was currently with Thin Lizzy, as we've already pointed out. This is the first single off their new album, Lament, and is a new entry at number 37. Everything's in the upper part of the charts this week, isn't it? We haven't had one top 10 single mm-hmm. yet. So Midjor actually mentioned this episode of Top of the Pops in a Smash Hits interview when he said, I don't like Morrissey, I think he's a bit of a prat. We were on Top of the Pops and he turned up looking like everyone else in normal, ordinary clothes. Then he changed into his perfectly unironed shirt, which he pulled out of his trousers at all the right angles and away he went. He's not a a real person, he's a facade like Des (laughs) O'Connor. Which is the absolute ultimate insult. At my school, <laughs> the biggest insult you could give anyone is that they look well desert. Have you seen Sir? My sister used to go on about, oh, are you not going out wearing that? You look well desert, Dad. Right. And I used to go, what, what the fuck are you going on about? She says, yeah, desert, like Des O'Connor. Yeah, the, 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 it's a little bit rich, though, of old, old, old Midge, because he was the absolute fraud, I mean, of all frauds, really. I mean, you know, somebody that started off uh, as a kind of, basically roller wannabe with slick and then as a punk wannabe you know with rich kids and then um yeah. you know and then sort of like before sort of um you know acquiring the kind of leadership of um ultravox you know when the kind of electric pop wave comes in so he's a he's a three-time mm. bandwagon jumper although by this stage it's almost like they're not really anything really they're just this sort of nondescript sort of power pop, pop rock of some sort it's hard to really describe really all the kind of elements of, of his kind mm. of sort of hack rock career are kind of melded into this sort of jelly sort of mediocrity by the way do you want to know what the headline of the smash it's interview Go was if, if joan collins can be a sex bomb at 50 so can i am i right well done sir <laughs> uh i if seriously if 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 all the books that I read five years later stuck in my head as much as the pop charts and smash hits of the mid-80s, I'd be one of the world's leading public <laughs> intellectuals. This is just what a waste. What a waste. If Joan Collins could be a sex bomb at 50, so can I. That's something That's something to aspire <laughs> to, isn't it? Fucking mm-hmm. out, I'm 50 in a couple of years' time. If Joan Collins could be a sex bomb at 50, so can I. I'm going to say that to myself every morning. When I'm in the shower. And of course, tell you, if you need an example how far away we are from the glory years of the early uh, 80s, here's Ultrabox being a proper band with proper instruments. Yeah, not needed. This is an astonishingly windy record. This is the, the pumped up with empty space like, you know, a colonoscopy or something. Just mm. It's supposed to sound like the, the view from a helicopter, you know what I mean? But it's like a helicopter flying over fucking Dagenham or something. It's this terrible sort of spurious grandeur. It's like... Uh, I mean, we've got you 2 and Simple Minds knocking about now. And Ultravox obviously fancies a bit of that. Yeah, but they're they're still trying they're still trying to keep this sort of sense of mysterious sort of European sophistication, like in the chart rundown where uh, one of the entries just before one of the entries is uh, Juan Martin who did the yes. theme from the Thornbirds, 
and yeah. Gary Davis is doing the countdown, and he, he makes a point of saying Juan Martin, like, yeah, like yeah. trying to pronounce. You know, this is when football commentators and stuff would always pronounce foreign names just phonet- phonetically in English. Yeah, uh, Gary really, it's like he's been to Marbella or something. He's no, I know yeah. all about this stuff. Tries to pronounce it properly, and in 1984, that was like having a croissant for your breakfast. Yeah. you know yes. what I mean. That was really go ahead, really forward thinking, <laughs> or a cappuccino. But, yeah, precisely. Yeah, but this, this is yeah, this terrible early to mid 80s attempt at uh, British people trying to be sophisticated Europeans. It's like you know, there's mm. something really sort of Del Boy about it. Something really. Yeah, and what's really, what's what's Major wearing? Can you remember? Oh dear God. Um, it's not quite um, a snood, is it? No, no, no. It's like a black smock, but with short sleeves. And Christ, I've just got in my notes the band are in dire need of a stylist, mm. but not Nick Kershaw's. The only, <laughs> the only good thing you can say about Majil, apart from his uh, his very uh, insightful words on Morrissey quoted earlier, is. Uh, that he, at least he didn't try and milk Band Aid, right? Like he was, uh, he was half of the, the, the Band Aid team, wasn't he? And uh, un, unlike Geldof, he didn't. You know, it, everyone's forgotten. Like you know, unless you're a, a, a sad obsessive about this stuff, you people have just forgotten that Mitchell had anything to do with Band Aid, and that's how it should be. You know, just fade into the background. Your work is done. You know, don't, uh, which can't be said of everyone involved in that particular project. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose he was, you know, the, the point was, if they've got Weller or something like that to do it, even like, I don't know, Bono and the Edge to the theme, it would have been too much, too idiosyncratic. You needed somebody sort of utterly bland and catch-all like Midieu, really, to write that particular theme. Give it just a, just enough of a windy Celtic feel. Yes, yes. Yeah. So one small day would jump eight places the following week but get no higher than number 27. They'd have a follow-up, Dancing With Tears In My Eyes, which got to number three, and the band would survive into 1988. one small day. Okay, it's time to have a look at the top ten, and this time you're reading it out, and so are you. Oh. Gold bar. (laughs) You're near Ethro Airport, have you? And at number 10, the Arrhythmics, and here comes the rain again. At number 9, it's Duran Duran with New Moon on Monday. At 8, Fiction Factory, and Feels Like Heaven. 7, we're going to take a holiday with Madonna. At number 6, that's Living Alright, Joe Fagan. And at number 5, with their second record in the charts, the Thompson Twins and Doctor Doctor. Moving up to number 4, Matthew Wilder and Break My Stride. And down onto number 3, Girls Just Wanna Have Fun from Cindy Lauper. At two this week, Queen and Radio Gaga. And at number one, it's Frankie Goes to Hollywood with Relax. DLT and Gary Davis run through the top ten with some gold bars. And Travis makes a very poor Brinks Matt robbery reference. And then definitely skip over the fact that the number one single is banned by the BBC. Yes, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Relax. Frankie Goes to Hollywood were formed in Liverpool in 1980 and they first came to national attention with a Peel session in 1982, followed by a film with a band playing an early version of Relax in the Liverpool State Ballroom in February of 1983, which was on the Tube. Anyone seen that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What did you think of it at the time? I mean, at the time it just seemed like a bit of kind of worthy channel for... um, 
regional pop, you know, yes, recording. Did, I mean, the, the idea that this would become the dominant one of the dominant moments of the 1980s, you know, and really does tell you about the kind of you know the nature sort of Trevor Horn his production the way it could absolutely sort of take something over and really you know and really sort of mm. build it into something glorious. Um, you know, the art of noise. You know, really it was it. it um, um, and, 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 and great, because I think, you know, you needed both. You couldn't just have, you know, Trevor Horn just going going through the kind of big, bouncy sort of production motions. You needed some subject matter, and I think it was great subject matter. Really. They, they, you know, yeah. it, it, it's great to have that, and, you know, and it was a magnificent pop moment. I think the one thing you could take away from that uh, appearance on the Tube is you could tell pretty quickly which of the band members were gay. <laughs> Always important. I mean, they're, they're basically wearing vest and pants, aren't they? They're like, you know, it's like they've been punished at, at, at PE. But while um, Holly Johnson and Paul Rutherford look extremely comfortable, the other three just look like really low-level wrestlers, don't they? They were signed by Zang Tum Tum soon afterwards. The song entered the chart in November of 1983 and took nine weeks to get into the top 40. Appeared on Top of the Pops when it reached number 35. And then on January the 11th, Mike Reed was playing it when he noticed the cover art and a press advert that claimed the band would make Duran Duran lick the shit off their shoes. He then yanked it off the ear (laughs) and claimed that he'd never play it again. It was then banned by the BBC, which made it the first top 40 single to be banned since Too Drunk to Fuck by the Dead Kennedys in 1981. And two weeks later, it became number one. Of course it did. Where's the fun in... um, trying to listen to a band single when you've already heard it yeah yeah i mean it was you know I and mean, it was the most ridiculous i mean i think that with god save even with god save the queen you could probably understand yeah i guess the bbc can't really play that i suppose i can understand why they do obviously disagree but and with do too drunk to fuck well i remember um tony blackburn having to introduce it by saying and uh, number 17 is uh, a single by a group who choose to call themselves the dead kennedys before marching on with this little hit parade um uh, or, or old, old judge dread or whatever i'm sure it was all a bit risque but I mean, in this instance, I, it was just absolutely ridiculous. It just made the BBC look absolutely stupid. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it really didn't. It was probably, you know, it was one of those kind of, you know, it was one of those significant smashing nicey moments or whatever. Which, you know, it, 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 it was just, it just revealed, um, you know, the kind of absurdity of the kind of people that were um, acting as, you know, custodians of pop. You know, at the kind of highest broadcasting level. It was ridiculous. Taylor, what did this song mean to you at that age? Oh, everything. I was 11. Can you imagine? You don't have to imagine. But can you imagine? At our school, it was, I mean, for a start, nobody even knew or cared that they were gay, right? It was just rude, right? People talk about now, it was like the first really aggressively gay record. It it was just rude. Nobody Mm. cared whether it was gay or straight. It it was was talked about cocks, you know. 11 years old, this is fantastic. Mm. This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened. Mm. Except that, uh, because of course at 11 you're at that age where it's quite peculiar. You know what sex is, but yeah. you don't know anything about it. Anything yeah. at all. So there was a, it, we got it a bit wrong. It, it was generally, in our playground, it was generally considered that the lyrics went, relax, don't do it when you want to suck and chew it. Right. Which, which is quite good advice. If you if you don't want to lose friends, well, it sounds like a round trees fruit pastel advert. <laughs> but yeah, this uh, this thing of being completely fascinated by this new new world of sex about which you knew absolutely nothing. There was a 
kid in our playground. I remember him saying, um, "Oh, you know, when when you do it, when you do it with a woman, you have to lick them out." And everyone was sort of saying, "What well, you have to, you have to see what is, yeah, you have to lick them." What? And somebody else said, "What does that mean? Lick their shit?" And everyone said, "What?" what? He was talking about, yeah, like picking up a shit and licking it. And everyone just sort of stared at him, and he said, "Well, Paul McCartney used to do it." I said, and "I queried this," and he said, "Yeah, I read it in a book." I said, "What book do you read this?" In? Oh, it's just a book about Paul McCartney. What was it? A biography of the Beatles? Yeah, yeah, it was a biography of the Beatles. It said he was always a very sexy man. That's the quote that stuck in my head. <laughs> he was always a very sexy man, going around, you know, licking Jane Asher's shit and stuff. It's yeah, it's. <laughs> It's odd because for, for, for when I was that age, the, the, the only sexual advice I was given was that you you had to get a girl down on the floor. And my mates would say, you know, oh, yeah, you, yeah, you just, you know. You, of course it was the thing, was because it was the 80s. Oh, what, what are you going to do when the four-minute warning goes off? Oh, I'm, I'm going to get a girl down on the floor. And it's like, <laughs> what, like, like rugby tackler or something? It, I mean, we'd, we'd been used to seeing kind of like, obviously gay people on top of the pulse for quite a few years now but but you're right absolutely nothing like uh, the, the the two in Frankie Goes to Hollywood I mean for Paul Rutherford looked like Yossa Hughes's younger brother for starters and he was probably the first gay person on top of the pops who you just didn't feel the need to take the piss out of and actually look really cool and think you know actually I wouldn't mind looking like him to the 11 year old I there is something in that like it's but it's, Holly Johnson looked really cool. It's like I I'm not sure that outside of Liverpool Paul Rutherford really looked that cool because you know the tash was a, a very uh, time and place specific. But Holly Johnson, you look at him even now, he looks fantastic. He's got like a slick back hair and a a nice suit and uh, sort of little gloves, little sort of like like strangler type gloves to add an element yeah. of menace. Uh, not fingerless. No, 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 no. Bucking the trend. It's like this is he's got prop actual gloves, as if to say, you know, my fingers go all the way to the end. And two obviously out gay men singing about hedonistic sex in nineteen eighty four seems incredibly brave nowadays, doesn't it? You know, this is the this is the year that Claire Rayner put a Johnny on a banana and you know the word uh, and the message that was being put out was, you know, gay sex equals death. What, as early as this? Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a, there, yeah, 1984. In the yeah. 19, you know, the 1980s obviously had, you know, AD, you know, it was so unspeakable a thing that they had to have that ridiculous advert with the icebergs. There was homophobia at all mm. social levels and including institutional governmental level, you know. And yet you mm. do get a lot of gay pop. And I mean, you know, what's written, clearly these days, I mean, even the Tories have got a float at um, Pride or whatever. And the idea is that, homoph- mm. you know, homophobia is now institutionally that was outlawed, supposedly, and it's absolutely out of the question. And now, pop is strangely heterosexual. Where's all the gay gone? Yeah. Where's all the queer gone? Yeah. It's, 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 it's very strange. It's almost like once the battle, once the battle for sort of civil rights and recognition was won, there's no need for any more gay pop. Um, something like that's mm. happened, or it, or, is it just, or is that just part of the overall sort of blandness, uh, you know, of 21st century pop? I'm not quite sure. But where is it all gone? There was so much then. There's none yeah. now. It's weird. 
So Relax would stay at number one for two more weeks when it was knocked off the top by Nana's 99 Red Balloons. And then it would drift out to number 31 at the beginning of the May. But then it turned round and went right back up to number two by July, eventually becoming the second biggest selling single of 1984. That's incredible, isn't it? When Frankie mm. Goes Hollywood number one and number two. Was that to do with remixes and stuff like that and them all having the same serial number? Like the jam used to do with their God, seven inches yeah, and twelve yeah, inches. Might, yeah, might well be. I mean, you know, it was a real sensation then when something went, you know, like went straight to number one. I mean, obviously number one then meant a great deal more than number one now. I do miss the days when things would clamber steadily, you know, you know up to the sort of like, you know, sort of, and then make a kind of slow, gradual descent. So they've made a graph of it. It'd be like a kind of, you know, like the outline of Everest or something like that or, or whatever. But, um, or sort of on a table mountain or something like you were there for six, seven weeks, whatever. But, um, yeah, the slow yeah. the slow descent was weirder though because it's mm. like surely it's gone. It's the moment's gone. Yeah. If you when you mm. see top of the pops is from like late January, yeah. and it's got like Christmas mm. records, and they're still in the yeah. they're like yeah, number yeah. fourteen. Yes, yes. Who who yeah. went out yeah. in 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 the yeah. third week of January to buy you know never mind the Merry presents? Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> And so that's nearly it for tonight. Thanks very much indeed for watching. Next week, Top of the Pops presented by Simon Bates and Peter Powell. That's a lot from us here. We've had a lot of fun this Thursday. Join us again next week for another Top of the Pops. Till then, have a gold bar. Bye. So in the place of Relax is Holiday by Madonna, which is the third Madonna single and her first UK hit. The UK cover had a picture of a 1950s train station instead of a pic of the artist as they didn't want British DJs and punters to know that she was white. It's always a barrier to sales in this country, being white. It entered the charts in January after a filmed appearance at the Hacienda which was screened on the tube. There you go, that's number three. David, would it, would it have bothered, did you buy this? Yep, I did. And it would have bothered me to know that she was white. You know, I was one of these little hipsters that was kind of going out and buying imports, funk imports at four ninety nine a go. And my God, you know, four ninety nine back then mm. was four ninety nine. Um and yeah, you know, real serious cashiers sort of surrounding these records. And I would have assumed when I first got the the first thing I got was everybody. And I assumed that she was like, I don't know, Angela Bofill or Melville Moore, all these kind of sort of, you know, sort of divas that were doing the rounds at that time. And I assumed she was black. And yes, right. I must admit that I did feel ever so slightly short changed. Oh. Twat that I was. Um, when I realised that she was she was white, you know they they, they didn't they, they knew something there. They knew about people like me and our mentality. Because you hear you hear the other examples of um, of of white singers that people think are black, and you just go, well, mm. what twat even thought mm. that? I mean, Rick Astley. Did anyone actually mm. really think he was black? Mm. Morrissey. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's it's not that she sings with such a full throated gospel vocal or anything no. like that. It's the nature. It's just the nature of production. Normally, yes. people are on that kind of you know, who who are on that kind of conveyor belt of sort of like sort of D-trained type, type jelly bean funk. They just tend to have black singers. It was unusual for a white singer to be um, in that particular world. Mm. Taylor, is there anything in this song that w- would make you think that she was going to have a massive long career? Um, no, it's it's a New York uh, uh, funky dance record, isn't it? With, with some mm. sort of um, mm. chirping over the top. I'm a bit of a... Bit of a Madonna skeptic, to be honest. I like I, I like a few of hers, but I think she's uh, I don't think she's all that much. The only one of these early ones that I really like is uh, Borderline. Stuff like right. stuff like Holiday to me. It always sounds a bit. Sounds, dare I say it? It sounds a bit white. 
It's just not doesn't sound quite as rich or quite as dirty as the best of those sort of records. It's uh, a li- mm. little bit squeaky. I mean, yeah, this is just what it is, really. It is just a sort of fairly light, disposable, sort of funky, sort of synthy, you know, 12 inch, whatever. And, you know, the little about celebration in every nation and all that, you know. I mean, yeah. Madonna, I suppose, really gets going when she sort of gets into this sort of narcissistic sort of perpetual self-reinvention, you know, the material girl thing, all that kind of stuff, you mm. know, where she seems to sort of chime in with a mildly kind of obnoxious note of the 1980s or whatever. Um, then it all gets going from there, really. But, yeah, there's no... I, I, and I, even, you know, at this point, you know, I was still buying Madonna singles because I quite like that kind of sort of light dance floor stuff. But, mm. no, I never imagined that, she, you know, I just imagined she was on a par with sort of Teeny Marie or something like that. Yeah. Kelly Marie. <laughs> or even Kelly Marie. Yeah. <laughs> So Holiday moved at one place the next week and no higher. This is the only song from the top ten that's in the, it's on top of the pops this week. Uh, she went on to just do everything, really, and, and pretty much everyone. So what's on telly afterwards then? Well, the BBC One is going into The Living Planet with David Attenborough. BBC Two's running a 40 minutes documentary about lonely women from Chicago travelling to Ireland in the hope of hooking up with some single farmers and fishermen. ITV's running the Steam Video Company with William Franklin and Barry Cryer. And Channel 4's going to Mallorca in an episode of Treasure Hunt with Annika Rice and Kenneth Kendall. <laughs> so, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow, chaps? Well, oh, well, I wasn't in the playground. Or what we're talking about on campus. Um, <laughs> oh, on, you, on the quad. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, on the quad, yeah. yes, yes. Um, down at the Bodleian. Uh, we're talking about it, it would have to be the Smiths, I suppose. Still, I think it was still, I mean, even though they'd still got they got this charming man under their belt, it was, um, it was still something that, that, that you know, even still second time around, it was still something that was kind of, um, very, very striking indeed. Um, it felt like one of the very few new things in sort of 83, 84. It's mostly time with lots of things from the early 80s are kind of dying away, really. Mm. Um, so um, probably that, but of course, the, it's the absence of um, relax, you know, yeah. well, of like, you know, being a bit of an eyebrow raiser as well. Definitely. Taylor? Um, madness. It's all over. Right. They've grown up. Is there anything, is there anything on this episode of Top of the Pops that we actually like? Uh, I do like. I, I, I mean, I think that I, I would have said at the time. I definitely, you know, I would, I would like that. What difference does it make? And I mm. would like, uh, you know, and I'd like, you know, Madonna, you know, um, holiday, um, and then in between, no, no, no. It's strange. And I mean, just like you say, it's really. It seems to be a slightly disorganised episode. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't get the feeling that this is all strategically planned. That they would only have, they would have no black people on this week. It, yeah, it sounds no. more like kind of cock up, really. Or you know, it's probably mm. only afterwards thought, hey, we didn't have any top ten singles, did we? Why is that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's almost like I, I, I'm sure that things were just ever so slightly more random when it came to programming mm. back then. And that um, you know, I definitely put this to down to cock up rather than conspiracy. It definitely has a B team feel about it, doesn't it? N- yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it also you know, come down to who who was available or whatever. Of course. Also get the impression that they have to fill in because, of course, there's three or four sort of precious air minutes that they can't fill because they can't play relax. Yeah. So I get the impression that maybe one or two of the performances go on a little bit longer than you'd expect on this particular yeah. edition. Yeah, I can imagine you're right. I can imagine you're right because they usually cut the video short, don't they? But yeah, they yeah, don't yeah. on this one. Yeah. No, no, no. They usually get a bit truncated, but there's not much truncation on this one. No. So what does this show tell us about music in 1984? That it was um, not quite as good as 1983, but still better than 1985. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, um, I mean, from a sort of absolute pop perspective, I mean, I suppose, it, 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 yeah, it feels like sort of end times to me, really. Um, mm. You know, there are an awful lot of these things. There's a lot of, um, as is always the case in pop music, there's a lot of kind of weird malingers that are still overlapping with the kind of, you know, the new stuff, even as it's sort of beginning to fade. Um um, yeah, there is a slightly depressing mouldy air about this particular episode, um, mm-hmm. episode edition. Um, and yeah, it was it was in between times, really. I think it was. I mean, yeah, Live Aid was about to become the new sort of hideous thing, as Taylor had mentioned on the old event horizon, um, and that would kind of alter, you know, the whole sort of. You know, I mean, it was Live Aid was everybody would get, wants to get back together in a field together again. It was one mm. of those kind of events, like Rave and like Oasis. You know, I think there's a sort of sense of disparateness, you know, in the 80s and in, in terms of popping you know, and tribalism or whatever. And I think people were sort of pining for one massive big thing again. Yeah. And Live Aid offered a sort of sense of that. And that's why I think Queen was suddenly kind of revived. People just wanted to worship superstars again. Um, yeah. And I think, like, you know, the whole, in a sense, you know, by 84, everything's still slightly determined by punk, but less and less so, or post-punk and new pop. Yeah. And all that's kind of fading away, and the Nick Kershaws, people like that, are coming in. So, um, yeah, it's a kind of sort of a fading time, an in-between time. Well, on that note, we uh, bring proceedings to an end. I'd just like to say thank you to uh, Taylor Parks. Always a pleasure. And I'd like to say thank you to David Stubbs. And thank you very much. No, you're welcome, sir. You're welcome. Don't forget, we do this on an occasional basis. Um, We'll try and get the next one out as soon as we can, but we don't know when that is, so I won't bother you with it just now. But you can reach us on Facebook at facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. Fuck Twitter. Thanks for listening. Have a gold bar. Chart music. We've got to get into the bargain, so thanks for the call. Sorry if you couldn't get through. What have you brought with you? Um, Lots of glamorous, pranky memorabilia. (laughs) I've got a pair of trousers I wore on tour in the minute. By Anthony Price. Anthony Price trousers. I've got um, a French gold disc for a certain A record. We'll call it relaxed just for the sake of (laughs) it. I've got a a glamorous leather jacket. That I wore on the relaxed video, but it's changed colour since then. It's <laughs> um, good, it's nice. Pad, pad. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't an effigy of pads. <laughs> you won, the, you won this in Germany, it's this is a German shirt. award. Yeah, it was a German and it's award. a great wrench for them to give this away. For best and, new band. And like, you know, that kind of sign thing. Okay. Our new single, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. <laughs> Which we're going to see in a second. Indeed. And you've got a question? Yeah, we've got three questions, actually. The first one is, only a true... Yeah, the only a true (laughs) Frankie fan could answer this. Who did we do our first radio interview with? That's number one. Okay. What was odd about that interview? And who banned relax? (laughs) (laughs) That's the question. I know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. You can't away. give it away. You can't Can give I it away. Very All quiet. Right. Those three <laughs> questions to Superstore, BBC Television, London, W12HQT.